Rosalie here. I am the little helper of the Live Feisty Media Podcasts. The Iron Women Podcast, I think, is one of the best podcasts in the whole entire world. I want to be a professional triathlete when I grow up because it makes us healthy and strong to do lots of triathlon. I also think I might want to be a hairdresser. Just saying. You can help Iron Women grow by using the codes Iron Women when you order from our sponsors. It really helps. Those sponsors are Crave Jerky, F2C Nutrition, Sound Probiotics, Coffee Method, Rudy Project, and Smashfest Queen. Go to ironwomenpodcast.com to find all codes and links. And now, introducing your hosts, Alyssa Kadeski and Haley Chura. everyone welcome to iron women this week's episode is a little bit different as i am flying solo here today because my lovely co-host Haley chura is actually traveling back from ironman brazil she has a fantastic excuse for us which is that she did race the ironman there and came in fourth and so we are so happy for her she definitely deserves all the time off and she's traveling back but You know, Haley, she wanted to call in and let us know how it went. So we actually have a voicemail. So let's hear from Haley. Hi, or maybe I should say oi from Brazil. This is Haley. I raced Ironman Brazil this week. So I am traveling home during the recording of the Ironman podcast. So I'm letting Alyssa fly solo. I'm sure it will be an excellent show, but... Just to give you a little update on my race in Florianopolis, we had absolutely beautiful weather, an amazing day. It was, it was crazy. There were so many people out cheering and, um, just a really cool experience. And, um, for me personally, it wasn't my best performance ever, but I finished, I got fourth place and I learned a lot. So I will take that and, you know, we'll, after some celebratory beverages and um, food, I will I'll focus on learning from that. I did get my first ever on-course proposal, marriage proposal, and I think I was still pretty with it then. I might have smiled, but I, I should have said yes, of course. No, I'm just kidding. I, he might have proposed to every single uh, pro woman out there. We'd have to get some updates from the other women, but it was a great day. It was a fun day, and I love racing here in Florianopolis. Um, I love the South American racing, obviously, and super impressive performances by Kirsty John winning, Sarah Piampiano coming second, and Bruna Mon coming third. It was a really cool day. So enjoy the show and I will be back next week. Bye or ciao. So good to hear from Haley. And again, congratulations. We are all so proud of you. Safe travels and we cannot wait to get some more details from you next week. 
And in the meantime, I am going to talk a little bit about things because I have an announcement and I am telling the listeners today about my next project. So you may know me as someone who loves to race the iron distance and I think I'm up, I think I'm over 30 of them by now, but I I always lose count and then get distracted. So I, I, I think I've gone over 30 by now. And in the past three seasons, I raced six last season. I raced five the season before. I raced five the season before that. And I realized I have been racing a lot of Ironman. And, you know, when you do something like that, your motivation kind of comes and goes. That's totally normal. But I just really felt like it was kind of going more than coming for me to be excited about racing. And, you know, I, I've said it on this podcast, I want to be on the top of a podium, um, you know, one of those three spots, preferably with more than three pro women racing too. But to do that, I mean, you have to be hungry for it. You have to really want to be getting up each day and like setting my sights on that goal and training as hard as I can. And when that's not quite there, you know, you can go through the motions, but you know, it just, it didn't feel fair to me or right. So, you know, like anyone else, I have this bucket list of things I would like to do. And I kind of had gone back to that and was talking to my coach, Hillary Biscay about it. And we went back and forth. And you might even remember last fall, I had recorded from Vermont, um, an episode while I was there trail running. And I was actually out there scouting the Vermont long trail. Because one of the things I've always been super intrigued by is this concept of long distance hiking and long distance trail running and multi-day adventures with that. And ever since, you know, I learned about the records on the Appalachian Trail, I've just been, I don't want to say obsessed, but definitely very up to speed on the records that are set on these trails, like the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Vermont Long Trail. And I've just always really wanted to try something like that. And so after my trip to Vermont last fall, it was funny. I actually was like, I don't know if I can do it. This is way too hard. And Hillary kind of told me, you know, if the fact that it's kind of hard is the thing that's going to keep us from trying, you know, that's silly. Let's do it. And let's kind of throw everything we have into it. So that's actually what I'm going to do. You know, after seeing what that trail was like, I realized it wasn't going to be something where I could just train at home and then pop up for the adventure and hope to set a record. I kind of was humbled more than that by the trail. So I'm actually going to be heading up to Vermont in the next couple of weeks and training up there for a few months. And then I will this summer make a go at the, it's called a fastest known time, also known as FKTs for people in the trail running, ultra running world. And I'm going to see yeah, how fast I can cover it. It's 273 miles. It starts at the north end of Vermont at the Canadian border and runs all the way to the Massachusetts border. And it covers a lot. It just goes up and down the mountains that are in the way between those two spots. So the current record is for women held by Nikki Kimball. And if you are in the ultra running world at all, you definitely know that name because she is one of the greatest female ultra runners that has come. She has the record with five days, seven hours and 42 minutes. And there is a men's record, which is four days and 12 hours. So I am, you know, planning once I get up there and I think I train a little bit more, we'll make a, a plan about where I can see myself coming in. But right now it's just been a lot of fun things. I have a lot of planning going on, maps all over the place. And I am excited Ramona's going to come up with me and kind of help me start this adventure. So I'm excited to bring 
everyone more details about this. I know it's not necessarily the typical Iron Women project, but hopefully you guys will have fun following along. And then this summer we can see how I do with that. So that was my big news. And I am a thousand percent positive that next week when Haley is back, she is going to ask me all of the questions about this that I am missing. So I'll leave that to her. And then, of course, we always have our mailbag, ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com for you to ask questions about this or about triathlon, of course, training, everything in between. So please reach out and let us know what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. And that brings me to today's episode, which is great. We have two special, well, I guess, since Haley's not here, have two great interviews for you. The first one, we are bringing back our resident expert coach, Marilyn Chicota. And if you've been following along, she has been with us throughout several episodes, mostly in the spring. And she's been training, she had been training for Ironman Texas. So we haven't talked to her since that race happened. We're excited to catch up with her on that. And then after Marilyn, uh, we have Catherine Bertine as well. But first, let's chat with Marilyn. We are grateful to be supported by Crave Jerky, Coffee Method, F2C Nutrition, Sound Probiotics, Rudy Project, and Smashfest Queen. Our podcast partner, Crave Jerky, is hosting a Find Your Fit contest from now through June 2018. All you have to do is post a selfie while working out. That should be easy for our listeners. And you could win $300 in gift cards from Flywheel, ClassPass, or Gaiam Yoga. And of course, Crave product. Use hashtag CraveBetter and hashtag SweepstatesEntry. One caveat though, you must be a US resident, 18 years or older to enter. Also, hashtag LiveFeisty so we can see your entry too. Details will be posted in the show notes for this podcast on LiveFeisty.com. Hi, Marilyn. Welcome back to Iron Women. How are you? Hey, Alyssa. I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. It's always so fun to chat with you ladies. Well, we have, you know, something big to catch up with you on first. And that's because you finally, we got you to your Ironman Texas race. And I've been dying to hear about how it all went. So tell us, how was your day? Thank you so much. I really appreciated the support. It was so great on race day to have so much love out there from so many people, you know, friends and athletes and support around the world. So that was really fun. And I definitely felt the love. So, so thanks for that. And yeah, you know, it was really fun to be back out there on the course in a whole different light and dynamic after being away a long time. And, you know, obviously a different, different set of goals, all those kinds of things. And it's quite funny. I was really nervous going in and I wasn't nervous for the same reasons I used to be, you know, it was before is how am I, how fast am I going to go? Am I going to be competitive? Will I place, you know, all, all the dynamics that go into racing professionally. But this time I was legit nervous about, can I complete this distance? And I kept thinking, you know, this is really, really far. And I still am old school that I have, you know, a, a very deep respect for, even though I've been doing this a long time, how far this race really is. And, you know, just having a, a short period of time to prepare and so many years off, I was, I was pretty nervous about going that far. So it was, it was fun. And it was definitely, there was one point on the run where I had a little joke with myself I was running along. I was barely moving, but I was saying, I was like, 
wow, my feet really hurt. <laughs> it's like, it's been a, I don't remember my feet hurting this much. <laughs> and uh, so it was really just a uh, one foot in front of the other. And the last three miles, I kept thinking, okay, just one mile at a time, one mile at a time. When I got to, you know, the last three miles and, and I saw, okay, one mile at a time, I got halfway through that first first one. And I went, how long are these last ones? <laughs> and so I was, I was also having some good fun with, with, uh, with myself and, and how it felt to be out there that long, for sure. So it sounds like you got to accomplish kind of what I think a lot of pros who are currently racing experience when it's like you're drilling yourself on the bike, right? Like, and then you're looking around sometimes like, I wish I could just do this and have a little bit of fun sometimes. Like I can't wait for those days. Right. So is it worth doing? Was it, has it, was it worth coming back and getting yourself into shape to do? Absolutely. You know, I, I, like I said before, I'm doing it for different reasons now, the just the routine and the quality of life and the friendships and, and being out there with everyone and, you know, just feeling fit and feeling excited about being, you know, out and out in the elements and the conditions and stuff it was absolutely worth it. And, you know, I'm happy to, to stay in triathlon, of course, and, and keep training and, and feeling, you know, good about being out there with everyone. So it was absolutely worth it. And I definitely still think, man, that is a fart. That race is just, (laughs) (laughs) you know, of course this was my 16th Ironman. And, and so I, I know how far it is, but when it's been that long, it was, it was a good reminder of just how long they are. And, you know, truly because the sport's been around a while now and it's so popular and it is a event that more and more people are doing, which is fantastic. But I think it's good to remember also the respect that this, event deserves, you know, and, and I've never lost that, but I feel like sometimes with all the, the new things out there that that gets lost a little bit, you know, people forget that this is, this is very, very long, you know, we've got Olympics and sprints and 70.3s and that. And, but when you're out there doing something continuously for hours and hours, basically all day long, depending on your pace, it's, it definitely deserves quite a bit of respect and the preparation that needs to go into it and just how hard it's going to be during that day and and how many different things can change and, and, you know, develop throughout the day. And so it sounds though, like you're talking as if you're not, you know, this wasn't a come back and do it and be done with it. So it sounds like you're going to stay maybe in the Ironman world again a little bit longer. Do you have something like else planned? Any, any other races coming up? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know as, as far as another Ironman this year, maybe. Um, I definitely want to do one next year for sure. I just really enjoy being fit enough to be out there with all the people and you know that I really care about and, and enjoying the training. I'll definitely do a couple half Ironmans this year. Um, I've registered for 70.3 Boulder. I'm going to pick races that I know, you know, I have a lot of friends in Boulder. It's also an excuse to go and visit them and and stay maybe for a week and enjoy Boulder. I used to spend the summers there every summer for six months training professionally. So it feels a little like a second home and, you know, I miss going there. So I thought, oh, what a great excuse to go and visit some friends and spend some time in Boulder and do the race. So that's, that'll be next on the docket. I'm also doing a little local half Ironman in Arizona. And I think it's next weekend, actually. So just, you know, enjoying some races around here that I can drive to and, and just go and have a good weekend with, with friends for sure. Very fun. Well, I know that we are all excited to have you 
back racing and, you know, available at the races again. So that's awesome. Congratulations again on getting that done. And we look forward to seeing you out there in the future. And of course, you know, I do have some questions for you as our resident coach expert that we bring in. Let's go. So first up, I wanted to talk to you about some best practices for athlete interactions with their coach. A lot of our listeners maybe don't have a coach and are thinking about getting one. And a lot of our our listeners might be athletes that have had coaches for various amounts of times. And I think everyone can always use good reminders and maybe some tips about what it is that we are looking at to be able to do our job the best for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when someone hires a coach, obviously they're investing in a relationship with someone that they have taken the time to research whether they respect their program, they respect the amount of knowledge that they have, they know that they've either produced athletes or been there themselves an athlete or a combination of both and it's been successful or they have something to offer that is going to bring out the best in them. So first and foremost, if you're looking for a coach, you know, take your time researching. There's there's a, a lot of different types of coaches out there, styles of coaches, levels of coaches. Make sure you invest in a coach that is going to be well-suited to you. And, um, you know, the next step is, you know, because it's a relationship and you're investing in that relationship, communication is going to be very important. So I have a, you know, rule of thumb is that every person that I coach, I have to like them as a person. So if I like to hear from them, I like to talk to them on the phone, I'm excited to get an email from them. I'm genuinely curious and excited about their training logs that they write. Uh, I, you know, I want to know how they're doing. So for me as a coach, I want to know that I really like the person and I have an invested interest in them getting better. I wake up every day and say, this person's goals are important to me. And now these goals are also my goals and we're going to get better together, whatever level that is. I'm, I like everything from beginner to professional and, and the full range. So, so that's important. The athlete's responsibility. I actually have, you know, because I've been at this a while, I took the time to make a little athlete code of conduct that you can find on my uh, website and in the guidelines and form section. I think it's important for athletes to understand that, you know, the more they can communicate and give their coach, the better. And it needs to be relevant to what they're, what, what they've hired them for. So, and what, what do I mean by that? It means that, you know, obviously if you're doing a specific run session, the coach needs to know, how did you feel? You know, how did, how did the session actually go play out? You know, what were maybe the, the weather conditions? How did, how did the body feel? Were there any injuries being honest about those injuries that if there is any, um, you know, what the temperature was, these kinds of things, what your splits were. So, you know, the, the, the actual stats and knowledge of how the session went and how the athlete felt and being really honest about that, you know, that's your, you have to look at your coach and know this is the safe zone. You know, as we, if we put something out on the internet or we're talking with maybe our competitors, sometimes we hold something back because we're worried about how it's going to look or, you know, we don't, we don't want to come across the wrong way. If you've hired a coach and you've invested in this relationship, you're in the safe zone to really let them know everything they need to know about the session and how that went in order for the coach to analyze it and say, okay, are we, are we hitting those benchmarks that we need to, to improve, or do we need to adjust the program or the paces or the sets or, you know, the block of training to really progress you now in saying that obviously 
you know, it's good to know what's going on in an athlete's day-to-day life because that has an impact on the training, work, life stress, you know, injury, like I say, being honest about these things. But at the same time, being respectful of the relationship, this isn't a necessarily, you know, you're friends with your athletes, but you're also still their coach. And so we don't need to know every detail of maybe all of your life, you know, your, your support system, as far as your spouse or your significant other, and then your friends, maybe they have a role in your whole development, but your coach is still your coach and you provide them the information that you need to get better and get through hurdles and, and, and improve as an athlete and get better together. So very specifically, what does that look like to me? That looks like a training log with a file. If we use data, Um, And then some kind of comments on how the session went and how you felt, including paces, um, you know, numbers and, and, you know, very, very specific things like that. So that's going to be helpful for me. I don't need to know if, you know, your dog was sick that day or, you know, things like that. But I do need to know if it was 101 degrees Fahrenheit out versus if it was 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So so there is specifics that you need to know or if you only got three hours of sleep versus you got your normal night's sleep, those kinds of things I do need to know. Those are the things that are important to me, clear, honest communication and specific and relevant to your progression towards your goals is what I look for. And then what about going into a race, right? So now it's race season, we're doing that. And sometimes depending on your coach and you know what level of coaching they offer, that sort of thing, you might be having a pre-race talk with them either on the phone or just virtually um, through email, that sort of thing. What do you think are like the best bullet points that as an athlete, they can kind of come to that talk prepared, right? And like, you know, I think there's something to be said sometimes about taking that sort of prep seriously and impressing your coach. And, you know, if you take the responsibility of yourself racing seriously, I know it, it also helps your coach kind of become more invested in that for you when they see what you're doing to prepare. Absolutely. So with all of my athletes, you know, we, they have a very, Um, clear outline of of what my, what my week and my expectations are out of them each week. And all of my athletes know that if it's race week, somewhere between Tuesday and Thursday, but they know for sure on Thursday at the very latest, they're going to get an email from me with a very clear, um, and, and every coach can do this and make it really specific to what they're looking for. I have one again on my athletes, um, and on my, on my website and the, on the guidelines and forms a pre-race goal setting and, you know, outline of what we want to look at before we go into a race. So they know they're going to get an email from me saying, Hey, what are your goals? How are we going to execute this race? What is your nutrition plan? What are the specifics on maybe your, your warm up, your travel, your gear, all of that stuff going into this race. And so they have a very clear list of questions before they even, we even talk and they can go through them. They can answer them on the form and, and then we can go back and forth through email or we can do a phone call and, and go over, you know, what does that look like? But, you know, I do think it's important to do that the week of the race. Some people, they, I, my experience has been with, with the years of doing this is that some people like to do it really far out, two, three weeks, a month out. I feel personally, I, I won't let my athletes do that. And I do that for a very important reason is that it's too far to be stressing that much about your race and possibly something might change before then. So I actually, you mean, you mean they can't be losing sleep a month out? Because <laughs> no, I actually go 
force them to wait until the week of the race. Some of them with travel, if we end up doing it like Monday or Tuesday, that's okay. But I really, you know, I obviously, we know from training, you've done the work, you're doing the sessions every week. You have a pretty good idea of what you're doing going into your race. And if it comes race week and you're, if you don't know, then, you know, maybe we haven't been paying attention enough in the training to your paces and stuff like that. So you should already have a pretty clear idea about how this race is going to go just based on your training. And so later in the week, I send them this, you know, questionnaire that says very specifically, what are your goals? What are you expecting to learn from this race? How are we going to execute this specifically? Break up the swim, the bike, the run, the transitions. What is your nutrition? You know, what are, what are we specifically hoping to get out of this event? How is it meant to impact you as an athlete? Where does it look in the whole big picture of your progression? And then, you know, we can talk about that on the phone or like I say, just go through it back and forth through email. I do like some athletes will, will come back at me and say, well, you just tell me what to do. And I won't let them off the hook that easy. I want to know first what they're thinking about how they're going to approach this race. And I feel like that's an important part of the learning process for them. They need to know, I want to know, do they even have any idea? Say I got hit by a bus tomorrow, you know, and I wasn't going to be there for them. I want to know that I prepared them well enough that they could look at it and say, Hey, this, if I go through these steps and based on my training, I know exactly how I'm going to approach this race and how I'm going to get through it and what I'm hoping to get out of it and what my goals are. And I want to know from a coach's standpoint of view, what they're thinking, where they're at, where they're at mentally, where they see themselves, um, you know, in terms of paces and, and that kind of thing. And then, and then I can come back and say, well, this is what I see based on training and, and, you know, the things that I've seen in the past races and what our goals are and where we're going and stuff like that. And we can go back and forth. So there's certain that I, I drive my athletes nuts, but it's for a specific reason that I do it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really important because, you know, the same way sometimes we might encourage athletes to be able to do a session without, you know, God forbid their Garmin or their power meter or something, right. In case that weren't to be available one day while they were racing and the same thing, you know, Ironman's about problem solving, right. So, or half Ironman, I mean, really whatever distance, you are racing, things are going to come up and you have to fix that. You can't stop and say like, wait, coach Marilyn didn't tell me what to do if, you know, if the wind shifts and then I end up having a headwind for all 112 miles, you know? So I think that kind of practice is really good to help kind of train the mind to be able to take on what the race day is inevitably going to throw at them. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. Well, great. And so the second thing I wanted to chat with you about is to talk about this idea of using a race as just a quote training race. Right. And I think this can be pretty confusing to athletes because on one hand, someone's telling them a race is a race and you're going to go hard, but then you also might've had this thing where maybe your coach told you, well, this is going to be more of a training race in the structure of the season. So what could someone, you know, what does this mean? Do you taper for something that you're kind of training through? Do you take recovery from that? How does that work when you're, you know, quote, training through the race? Yeah, I think every coach is going to have a different definition for what this means. So I can explain to you what, what I feel like this is obviously to me, you know, and I, and I have done this with my athletes where I say, Hey, we're just going to have, you know, I might use the term training race or practice race or a B race or C race, sometimes depending on the athlete, you know, as a coach that the words you choose for each athlete might be a little different in, in how you're going to have them execute a day. So some people do test sets or something like that, but 
when we lay out the start of the year and we say we might label things like A race, triple A race, goal race, B race, C race. So the, often those training races fall into C race or B race category with, with the people that I work with. And we're using these specifically to, you know, get a little bit of practice of racing, get a, you know, obviously you're, the gun goes off, you're on a start line and finish line, you're going to race. You're going to go as hard as you can that day. Now, how hard is it that day? That means where are you at in terms of your fitness at that point in the year to where we're maybe we're working towards that triple A race, that goal race. So maybe this is playing a part in adding to the fitness to get there or practice of doing, you know, race morning nutrition, swim, bike and run together, transitions, race stress, you know, working out equipment, all of those kinds of things. And so still, I always say, you know, the gun goes off and there's a start line and finish line. You're going to go as hard as you can that day. It's just a matter of what are we working with that day in, at, in where we are in our preparation. Obviously, these races where there are C or B races, you might rest a little less into them. So you might, you know, for, for my athletes, it might be only, you know, 48 hours or 72 hours of rest, maybe a little bit easier week. And then it's treated as that's your hard session of the week. And so we expect that things are going to be, you know, not at their their prime speeds or, or you know, at those targets because maybe we're not that fit yet as well as we're a little more tired than we normally would be into a race. And so we're going as hard as we can that day, but we're not, we're not working with all, you know, all five matches lit at that race. And then recovery, whether it's an A race or a B race or a C race, I take recovery seriously. So I think one of the mistakes people make is if they do a B race or a C race is they try and get back into training the next day too soon. And then, you know, and they're fired up from the race and they had a bit of rest going into it. And so they go, they end up going really hard. Let's say the race was on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then when it's time to get back to work, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then that next week, all of a sudden maybe a niggle pops up or they get sick or they're just really, really tired and they're going, holy man, what happened? So I actually would, if, if I was helping someone, I would have them rest a little bit less into the race you know, use this, use the race as a really solid session. We would give it the appropriate, depending on the athlete's level ability and, you know, how much, how quickly they recover, have a recovery period. Maybe that's 24 hours. Maybe it's 48, maybe it's 72, maybe it's five days, depends on the athlete, obviously not sitting on the couch and doing nothing. And it's going to look different for each athlete, but the goal always is by the end of the week, we're back to real work. And then that next week, we're able to really hit those key se sessions and see a fitness boost or bump from doing that practice race towards our A race. And, and I really feel like that can be, you know, and, and it changes. There's different, I, I've seen, you know, I've seen all rules broken. You know, there's, those aren't hard rules. Those are just rules that I tend to follow and see work over and over again and set people up for success. Now there's going to be different athletes at different levels that, that we might break those rules and be trying something different than that. And, and it produces really great results. So it's really, you know, as always with coaching, it depends, but that's a, that's a, you know, a little bit of a rule you could use and, and see success pretty time and time again. Yeah. I think my current actually 70.3 PR is a race that like I did on very little rest and it was, you know, great for me mentally to see that, you know, those kinds of races can be really good practice, I think, 
separating how you mentally feel from how you're physically going. Right. So you can feel awful, but then you kind of look and you're like, okay, but you know, I'm still hitting my Watts. I'm still running the right pace. You know, I'm still doing great, but it just, it feels awful because I haven't rested for it perhaps, you know, that kind of thing. But it doesn't, you know, learning that those connections don't always matter is important too, I think. Especially in endurance sport, you know, with, when you do very, very high end type sports, like, and what I mean by that is like very, very short, fast stuff. So, you know, the shorter and faster something is, the more rested you need to be into it. Something like a, you know, a long, so 70.3 and on, those are pretty long. And so my old coach used to have a, a great saying that I, I've used time and time again, which is you don't have to feel good to do good. And these really, really long ultra events, which, you know, long distance triathlons in terms of racing, it's over 90 seconds, you know, it's it, it over 60 seconds. It's a long event. We're out there all day in, in most cases. And so you don't necessarily, the rest is going to be different versus it's, you know, fitness is very important. Yes, we need to rest. We can't be completely overdone and cooked into it, but you know, you don't need to be as rested as you would say you're doing something like a, you know, 200 meter hurdles event or something like a long jump or weightlifting or something like that, where you need to be really, really rested going in. It always makes me want to be like, Oh, I want to be a 200 meter (laughs) runner. I, you know, the race is so short. You get to rest a lot. Right. And then I go run a, you know, 38 second, 200. And I realize that dream is not even possible. (laughs) Yeah. One ball of fast twitch muscle that are so fast. Oh my God. It's amazing. Uh, well, Marilyn, thanks as always for joining us and giving your insights. I know this is always great information and we look forward to catching up with you again soon. We'll put the, um, in our show notes for our listeners, the links to the things you mentioned as well. So everyone can check those out and become better prepared athletes for their coaches. I think that's great. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Always really enjoy it. Well, we always love hearing from Marilyn. And if you guys have any questions for her or Haley and myself, you can always send them into ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And the next time we have Marilyn on, we can have her weigh in on those for us. And next up, I actually talked to Catherine Bertine, as promised. And Catherine does a little bit of everything. So she's a writer, she's an athlete, an activist, and a documentary filmmaker. Some of you might know Catherine as the woman who is pretty much behind the one-day women's cycling event at the Tour de France. She definitely has roots within professional sports herself. So she actually started as a professional ice skater and then became a pro triathlete. And also she was a pro cyclist and recently retired from that. So Catherine definitely has experience, you know, in all of the women's sports and has taken that not only to help advance female cycling with equality, but she also recently has started the home stretch foundation. And we've had some of those women on in past episodes to talk about, but today we have her way in on that as well as she's going to be with us this fall at the end of November at our outspoken women in triathlon summit. And she's going to be working on an advocacy piece there with us. So we talked to her a little bit about everything today, and I hope you enjoy that next. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to Iron Women. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Alyssa. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I can't believe it's taken us this long to have you on our show, actually, but we are excited to ask you a lot of questions today. So awesome. I think we'll just kind of jump right in if that's okay. I love it. 
you are known for so many things. So a lot of our listeners, you know, hopefully I've gotten them up to date on a lot of what you've done. But one of your latest projects has been the Homestretch Foundation. And we've actually had a couple of those women on the show and heard their perspectives. Frankie, Maya, they love it. But we certainly need your perspective. So you're coming up on a year and a half of having the door open at home stretch. I don't know if you can even believe that. So how's it going? Uh, it has been such an awesome, fun, incredible journey. And I love it. I can't believe that it's been a year and a half at this point, which for us means that we've had two full seasons uh, come through the home stretch. So it's crazy because I feel like it just started yesterday. So I guess that's a good sign that things are going the right direction. And I guess, can you, you know, one thing I haven't mentioned to the listeners is kind of the brief overview. So can you also give right. your 30-second spiel here about exactly what Homestretch is? Absolutely. So the, the condensed version is the fact that Homestretch Foundation is here to help the female athletes that are struggling, female professional athletes that are struggling with the gender pay gap. For example, in cycling at the world tour level, the men are allocated a mandatory base salary of roughly the equivalent of 40,000 US dollars, right? That's at the highest level of the world tour for men. At the women's world tour level, women have not been allocated a base salary. And what's happening is they are being lowballed, you know, by teams. The majority of these athletes that are putting in the same amount of work and everything that the men are putting in, the majority of them are making less than ten to $15,000. And that's really difficult because now they have to have two forms of income. They have to hold another part-time job. They have to, you know, lean on family because they don't have a base salary. So behind the scenes, what we're doing is at Homestretch is leveraging pressure to have the UCI change that ruling so that there is a base salary at the world tour level. And until that happens, what we're doing at the Homestretch is through an application process we can house up to eight female professional cyclists here at the home stretch uh, for free. And we're based in Tucson, Arizona, and that is a great training location. Both cyclists and triathletes know that it's a it's an amazing place to spend, you know, fall, uh, winter, spring. So uh, that's why we're based out here. And um, that is what we do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I've recorded a few episodes actually out of Tucson when I've been there for camps and such. So I can speak to that. It definitely yes. is the place to have something like that and provides great training grounds for those women coming in. And I imagine mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to have this property, you know, keep it available between donors to make it free for the women and then other people who are kind of staying throughout the year, everything like you're balancing a lot. So <laughs> what has been a challenge that you didn't anticipate when you started this? Because, you know, I don't think that you had done this already before. <laughs> correct. Correct. It's a whole new concept. So I, I hadn't done this before. I'd put years of thought and planning into it, but I knew of course there are going to be some obstacles along the way. And one is that, um, I do have an amazing business partner who's on the financial side of, allowing the home stretch to exist in this house. However, I'm the person who's wearing the hats, all the different hats that go along with uh, making this organization thrive. So from, you know, sorting the calendar to admissions for the athletes, structuring camps and other tenants that want to come in during the off season. And then of course the fundraising, right? And then of course, 
with anything in home ownership, there's always stuff that happens that you don't anticipate, whether it's um, a washer dryer that, you know, conks out right when you need it the most, you know, things like that. So the challenge has been wearing all of those hats at once. And it's very much in our plan at the home stretch that uh, once we reach, you know, the peak level of donations, we can actually hire somebody to do that job <laughs> so that I could go back to um, the writing and the activism as the number one, you know, um, thing that I can do to affect change. So right now it's just a lot of hats. <laughs> and one of the ways people could chip in, I think, and support is through that cookbook, right? You guys released. Yes. And I actually, I have a copy here too, and I love it. And maybe tell everyone what that is. It's the, was that an idea from, from you or did the, when did no, it was, with that? It was actually a fantastic idea from uh, one of our supporters who is a local triathlete, age group triathlete, who happens to be a graphic designer and she loves food. <laughs> and she said, hey, what about a cookbook where the athletes uh, give something, you know, give their recipes that they feel most, you know, compelled by as athletes? And I thought, what a great idea. That's fantastic. There is no cookbook like that out there. So we had all of our athletes who wanted to donate their recipes to the cookbook, you know, um, along like, hey, this is what uh, pro athletes eat. And um, and our graphic designer and supporter made the actual cookbook happen. And it looks fantastic. And it's beautiful and amazing. So, yes, we have cookbooks. We have T-shirts. We have cycling kits, right? Um, so those are three ways that people can chip in if they're uh, so inclined. And of course, standard donations too. We take those through our website, through you know, through PayPal, through Facebook, through everything that's out there. Homestretchfoundation.org is is our site. So that's uh, you know that's kind of an overview of how people can help. And we are 501c3 official, so make sure that you write that off on your taxes. <laughs> And in the end, how much time are you spending there right now? Are you kind of living based out of Homestretch in Tucson or are you traveling all over? What are you doing? Great question. So the Homestretch Foundation, it's almost like a small compound. We have one main house and two guest houses. And I live next door in the guest house. Um, So it's an important thing that I, I like to tell people that, you know, I'm not here living on premise with the athletes. I'm not... I'm not the dorm mom, you know, these are exactly these are what all... I was thinking of. But in my mind, oh. that's so fun, right? Because right. I love that kind of dorm <laughs> atmosphere. Right. I mean, definitely. And when we were younger and we were in college, you know, that kind of atmosphere is, is fun. But here at this stage in life, these are all professional women. Uh, the majority of our residents are in their late 20s and early 30s. So you know, we need to remind people that this is not, you know, an 18 to 22 year old party house. Like these women are actually, when they're not racing and recovering from training, they are set up on their laptops around the house doing their day jobs in addition to their professional careers. So yeah, I I always try to remind people like, no, I am not a dorm mom and I'm not cooking their dinner and tucking them in at night and braiding their hair, you know. <laughs> I don't live on the same premise. I'm next door. So that's it. Uh, I'm, yeah, so. I'm sure you do drop in, you know, from time to time and get to see a lot of what's going on. Do you have a favorite moment that you've experienced while Home Stretch has been open? Yeah, I definitely I definitely drop in to make sure that all the athletes, when they first arrive, they know where they're going and, you know, how the house works. And what makes me so happy to see, my happiest moments are 
watching these um, these highly competitive type A female athletes befriend each other and truly serve as connections for, you know, for what the future is going to bring and behold. And I, I can say this now being a retired athlete in my 40s, you know, and I look back and I've networked with so many people um, who I've met through the sport. And so these athletes are also realizing that, that these friendships and colleague, you know, type of atmospheres that they're creating are going to benefit them years down the road too. So that, it gives me a lot of joy to see that these um, athletes are forming lasting bonds with one another. That's really great to see. And that's definitely what we heard in their interviews too. So well done oh, on good. that. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to switch gears a little bit and kind of get into more of the questions that I like to ask you. Um, you know, I haven't given our listeners a background. I think I first was able to meet you in person at a Mexican restaurant in Tucson, actually over like margaritas and chips and guac. And we were discussing <laughs> 50 women to Kona and 5Q and you were our literally resident expert who came in to that dinner to help <laughs> answer a lot of our questions and kind of be a sounding board for us because you had surely experienced so much as you've been battling the pay gap in cycling. So one of the things that, you know, I often have heard through the 50 Women to Kona movement and then just, you know, even with the outspoken women in triathlon summit, we kind of sometimes hear this too. And it's people who, you know, are asking a lot of, is it quote, kind of reverse discrimination to offer these opportunities to women, you know, like a male cyclist just starting out might raise his hand and be like, Hey, you know what? I don't make much money. I'd love a free place to stay to help me get on my feet. And a lot of times this is, you know, I know it has been for me and it is for other women. It's, you know, we know in our hearts it right, it's right. And we know, you know, in our soul kind of that we're doing the right thing by making these opportunities for women, but it's so hard to find those words to articulate to the naysayers why that is. So can you help us? What, what is, you know, the go-to thing that your brain can go to, to help you start that conversation with these people? That it's such a great question. Um, I definitely have a lot of experience with naysayers <laughs> because they look at what we've done to leverage equality at the Tour de France that, you know, and that was four years ago where that platform of Le Tour Entier we created to bring women to Tour de France. And the, the biggest thing that you're going to face with, with the naysayers is really, it's always going to be that their comments are steeped in ignorance, right? That is the root of uh, most things that are unequal, is that uh, there's a lot of ignorance that, that surrounds that, you know, um, something has not been brought up to the present day standards of what equal equality should be. So uh, I think, and I, of course, I get a lot of this on social media, on, on Twitter and, and Facebook, and people put out those posts like, you know, well, wait a minute, just like you said, well, hey, I, I'm, I'm a man and I'd like to stay at, at the home stretch or wait, I don't understand. Women want to race at men, at events where men are racing. Well, I don't understand. How is that possible? That, that can't work. You know, it's so it's amazing. All of these, these, um, <laughs> these philosophies and personalities that you get. So let's see some of the things, first of all, you mentioned reverse discrimination. One of the best things that we can do as women is to really deconstruct that and realize there is no reverse discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination, no matter whom it's applied toward, right? 
So whether it's uh, people of color discriminating against white people or white people discriminating against people of color or men doing that to women or women doing that to men, it's all discrimination, right? So we, um, the best thing we can do is step away from this idea of reverse discrimination and look at square in the eye and say, hey, if you see something that's not right and it's discriminatory, call it out, right? So yes, so you brought up a lot of topics. I can talk to you about, let's start with the, the men who are like, hey, I'd, I'd like to stay at the home stretch or I'd like something mm-hmm. that the women have. We have actually had seven men come through our program And what we do is we point out to the men who say these things like, you know, I don't make a lot of money. I'd like to stay there, too. We have to remind them of the structure. And uh, the structure is that men at the world tour in cycling do get a base salary. Right. And the women don't. And in all of those steps that it takes to get from, you know, category four beginner cyclist up to the world tour level, that's an acceptable struggle for all of us, for men and women. As you know this, you're an athlete, right? You have to pay your dues along the way, and you have to get better and stronger and faster to ever get to that level. So what we try to remind people is when we're all paying our dues in sport and working our way up the ladder, what's at the top of that ladder, there needs to be equality. So that's the structure. I have not yet had a world tour male cyclist say to me, hey, I'd like to pay, I'd like to stay at the home stretch. Why aren't I allowed? You know, well, probably because you can afford rent anywhere, but our women can't, you know, is how we would we would structure that argument. But they're not even bringing that up. And so for the athletes that are the guys that are looking for a free place to stay, you know, we can say, hey, all of our women, as they were climbing through the ranks of cycling, we're also looking for free places to stay. But we're catering to the women who are at the top who know who don't have that free place to stay. Right. So we so it's all about kind of educating people along the way. Um, where the where the system is working or failing, right? So, um, and then back to the naysayers, um, there are a couple things. I would always encourage people to educate the naysayers when the opportunity arises, but don't engage with the trolls, you know, who who speak their mind because they're so sure that, you know, their hurtful words or their crappy attitude is right. You know, let those dudes or women go, let that go. Um, but focus on the people who bring up a point that you can counter, counteract that point, you know, something that might be wrong. And you can say, well, actually, no, this is right. Or you can direct them. The best thing always, if, if somebody asks a question, um, and this happened many, I can't remember if it was months or years ago at this point, but there was uh, somebody on Twitter who, um, asked a very direct question when we were lobbying that podium girls were a very out of date concept in, in road cycling, you know, let's move beyond men having to be kissed by beautiful women when they win something. Right. And, um, and we had a lot of people who were like, you know, they would, they would shout and be like, you know, no, you're crazy. That's, that's tradition. That's, you know, and then we had one person who said, well, what's wrong with podium girls? It was a direct question. They wanted to know. And that was a really fantastic opportunity to lean in with kindness and say, okay, well, here's some of the factors that modern women feel about, um, or not just modern women, but modern society feels about the message of podium girls. And you can engage in a dialogue. And sometimes that person who is often a stranger, right, they will write back like, oh, interesting. Okay, thanks. 
Yeah, they, they want to know. And so I think we have a responsible role as activists or somebody that wants to further our, our mission um, in how we can respond constructively. And I also want to say that if you can't respond constructively because somebody's being, you know, a real a real jerk, and I'm using like radio language <laughs> for the word that I would rather say, but if they're being that way, then forget it. Let it go. Don't, you know, don't feed the... Um, that situation because they're actually just looking for a rise, right? And I imagine, you know, having a little bit of thick skin to be able to kind of patiently wait for those moments to, to <laughs> find the good moment to engage is a part of it too. <laughs> yes, yes. We always have to remember too that patience is important, especially with social media, because I know we probably all feel this when we read a crappy tweet or message. You almost want to engage immediately and be like, I don't like this, fire back, right? But um, let's step back from that and be like, okay, there is no direct need to do that immediately. Let's let it simmer. What does it make us feel? What do we actually want to communicate? And do we want to communicate at all? So it's okay. Never feel like you have to respond at all. And if you do choose to respond, it doesn't need to be immediately. And you're, what you bring up about the thick skin part is funny <laughs> because I do have a very thick skin for things that are unequal you know, between men and women, that is my platform. I want to see that equality, um, you know, change in favor of, you know, of equality for women. And I have no problem going head to head, you know, battling that out with people, with, with naysayers, with anything, but I'm, I'm also a human being. And sometimes people, um, if they choose to engage and be nasty or kind of shitty, you know, to me as a person, you know, that, of course, I'm human and that stuff hurts and it sucks and I don't like it. I don't think there's, you know, any thick skinned person out there um, who likes to be called out personally on um, on who they are as an individual, as as opposed to what they're fighting for. Right. It's funny you bring that up in the past. I'm going to say three months. I've called out um, things that are unequal between the UCI, which is the Cyclist Federation, things that are unequal at um, WTC or, you know, Ironman. I've called out inequities um, with Tour of California or with other, you know, races. And I find it fascinating that the men that are in leadership roles in these positions actually email, call, or write directly to me if they don't like a tweet that I've put out, you know, and I, it's, it's a fascinating thing to see that, you know, um, maybe they feel the need to actually get in touch with me because maybe they know deep down that I'm right, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that women should be equal. But, uh, what they don't like is that attention is called to their organizations, which are not yet at the level of equality where they should be. And that's a good intro for this question for you, because in, <laughs> in cycling, you know, a lot of the inequalities are unfortunately quite obvious, right? You know, mm -hmm. the, yes. you can look at the men versus women salaries and you can say clearly, you know, no one looking at that would call that equal. Um, triathlon, you know, and I mean, in some instances, there's not even a women's race, right? Clearly unequal. In triathlon, the lines are blurred a little bit more now, and it's not as tangible because we have made some really good advances and, you know, we are further along in that fight for equality yet some stuff still remains. And so 
what would you say to, you know, the triathletes who kind of have to fight these intangibles, like a culture of intimidation and, you know, just kind of changing what leadership looks like within the sport? How, right. you know, what are, what's your advice for, for that? That's, it's a great question. Always when there, whenever there is a position of leadership that, um, within triathlon that somebody can run for to affect that change, I encourage those athletes to do that. It's taking a step toward knowing that, um, they can empower that change by being in those, uh, those positions. Right. Um, however, for those who aren't necessarily interested in running for those offices within the sport, it's important to know, and you bring up the word intimidation, right? I have had that many times where I'm, I'm going to say that men use this technique. I'm not saying that women can't also use this technique. I've only experienced it with men. And they try to use this intimidation technique of just um, kind of, you know, throwing darts and blowing smoke and throwing out all of these ideas and seeing what sticks in terms of what that woman reacts to. Right. And it's a fascinating thing. I mean, it's, it's like they're blustering this and that and the other thing. No, you know, hold on, we can't we can't have 50 women to Kona because, you know, there aren't enough spaces on the pier. Or, you know, it'll, it'll just, it'll change the dynamic. Da, 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 da. And they're looking for, you know, what's the, that person going to respond to? And then as soon as we respond, they hone in on whatever that might be. One of the things that drives um, administration or, you know, intimidators nuts is if you can be as calm and collected and not riled by all of this stuff they're throwing at you. And you can say, okay, thank you for your input and this, and then you stick to your original point. You know, there, there is no feasible reason why this should be what it is. And here's what we can do to change it. So the best things that we can do is react to these, um, you know, intimidators, if you will, um, by sticking to the, the data that we have that shows, no, no, it would actually be inclusive and the ROI of the sport would increase if, you know, if we have equality and make sure that everybody has their, their bullet points down and that they stick to those facts and, uh, and remain very calm when they're being berated by the intimidators and just take that attitude. Like, you know, you can, you can blow as much smoke as you want right now, but I am not going to change my course. I'm staying, you know, sticking true to this and we will continue to fight and that will rile them up the calmer and more collected and the stronger you stay to your argument and you don't go away. Boy, will that, uh, that'll ruffle them. <laughs> and, you know, for some of our things, I know we've experienced plenty of pushback even from women. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I was really excited at first with 5Q movement and everything because, Paula Newby Frazier, I thought would be a great, you know, spokesperson for this. And she's actually someone who's continued to push back against it. Um, you know, and, and then <sighs> cycling too, you know, I'm sure you've had pushback from women and it, it, it is kind of a different beast to one receive that because I think it feels almost a little more personal. It, yeah. And then, but you know, do you have strategies or do you look at everyone, you know, pushback is pushback and you just keep plugging away with your strategy to get it done? You bring up something, and I think, and I applaud you for also bravely attaching names too. You know, um, with with Paula and how she might be acting toward uh, these advances that you and 50Q and everybody are trying to do. Right. Um, first of all, that's it's wonderful to call people out and say, "Look, this is somebody who has been 
a, a, a hero and a role model in our sport. And it really sucks that they're not being supportive of, of the movement. Um, absolutely. I cannot tell you how much it blew my mind when we were fighting for women at the Tour de France. And there were a few women, which who I will say were a little bit younger, but also ignorant to this, right? But they were saying like, well, I don't want to race a Tour de France. And my initial thought was, well, you don't have to, you know, you might be a track cyclist. You don't, you might not have any interest in racing the Tour de France, but you need to stick up for the women who want to race the Tour de France and who are able and who that's their event. You know, heck, I don't want to race a flying 1K on the track, but I wouldn't, I'm not going to go against your right and ability to do so, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes whenever you have the opportunity to let a woman know that even if, um, you know, if they don't want to be an Ironman or they have no interest in Kona for whatever reason, okay, but don't step on the toes of the people who are being progressive and who do want that. And you're absolutely right. It, and I just remember that being a really eye-opening experience. How do we change that? And the best thing to do is to go up to those women and ask if they, if you can talk to them about this, you know, and not be confrontational, but just say, hey, look, you know, and ask questions too. I'm curious, why why do you feel this way? See if you can get to the bottom of what's underneath that. Because I think in a lot of these cases, that's it might be really fascinating that if a woman can't support another woman, what's under the surface there? You know, and it's not necessarily our role to play psychologist, but it, it it's probably it probably has nothing to do with Kona or equality. There's something else, and it's manifesting through their actions. And sometimes it can actually lead to befriending these women in some way. I will tell you that when we, when we were fighting for the Tour de France, there was a cyclist who said, well, I don't understand there. I've, I won a stage of the Tour de France. There is a Tour de France for women. And she was referring to a race that was similar to Tour de France, but it was not the Tour de France, right? It it did not share the name, the title, any of that, but it was another race in France. And what she felt was that we were taking away from her win or her accomplishment by trying to press for equality at the actual Tour de France, right? And once you can see what's under somebody's skin, the easier it is for you to either let go of that or to try to engage them and say, hey, let's talk about you know, actually how this can really help women and and what we're trying to do won't take away from you and from what you've been doing, you know? So, um, it's, uh, it's a journey of self-discovery of how to deal with the, um, the naysayers, you know, for sure. And Catherine, the journey of, you know, a life of activism, a lot of times you, you know, in some ways you certainly do choose it, but in a lot of ways it kind of chooses you. And (laughs) it can be exhausting, right? And so, I mean, I know we were talking a little bit before coming on and you just joined Instagram, right? Which is great, but it's also (laughs) one more thing now on your plate that you can unplug from. So a lot of our listeners are athletes, they're moms, they're, you know, entrepreneurs, they're working full-time jobs, they're balancing everything. And one of the things I always appreciated about you was you were vocal about equality, but then also you know, you would be pretty vocal if you were like, hey, guys, I need a minute. You know, I'm taking some downtime for myself. Yes. What are first, I guess, your tricks as an entrepreneur for organizing your day and getting so much done right now that you've added Instagram to the list, too. And then (laughs) what do you have any advice for the people who struggle to unplug all of that? And like, maybe just talk about what benefits you've seen and why they should do it. 
Absolutely. I think we, we have to remember in this day and age of social media, which is always an instantaneous platform, you know, it often makes us feel that we constantly have to post and respond and do all of this. But the reality is we don't, right? I mean, think about it. Think about some friends you have on any of those platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and you haven't heard from them for a while, right? Um, we never really think to ourselves like, well, what happened? Where have you gone? Are you okay? You know, all we know is like, oh, okay. They've been living their life, doing their things. And now they're back posting. You know, let's remember that we need to do that for ourselves too sometimes. And stepping away can actually, the way that I look at it is stepping away from social media for anybody who's engaged in that platform is much, is as much the idea of what professional athletes or any athletes need as recovery when they're training, right? So thinking of stepping back as recovery might help people kind of be like, oh, you're right. I have been putting a lot out there into the world, into social media, into this and that. And you know what? Those were those are like workouts and now I need to recover. And it actually enables you to come back stronger and kind of get a get a picture of what matters most to you to post or to do whatever, um, you know, for me, I've been using, and I started this last summer. Now that I'm wearing so many hats at the home stretch and the summer is our off season from the home stretch. That was the time I finally had to be able to sit down and start working on my book and start writing. So on Facebook, Twitter, I, I wasn't on Instagram then, you know, but I actually put a, a message out saying, Hey guys, um, I am stepping away from social media to concentrate on, on writing my book. I'll be back in a few months. If there's any sort of emergency, please reach out. Otherwise I'll see you in September, you know? And what was awesome was to see how many likes that got, you know, for me just saying, I'm going to step back for a little while. And then how many people even contacted me privately and like, Oh, good for you. Good for you for stepping away, stepping back, you know, a little bit. Like, I wish I could do that. And I would say, you can't, it's okay. And there was something also that helped my mentality with that is knowing that I had publicly said something like, Hey, I'm going away. I'll be back later. That alleviated any sort of stress or anxiety rather than just taking time off and not letting anybody know. And then as you know, in social media, people might try to reach out to you through messenger or through whatever, trying to get a hold of you. I have to tell you, when I put that message out there that I'm stepping back, I barely received any messages via social media through the whole summer, which was wonderful. Or people would would um, kind of chime in like, hey, when you get back in September, can we talk about this? Or can I, you know, touch base about that? So they actually respected that boundary where has I, if I had not put that out there, um, I would have felt compelled to have to answer to all of the questions and emails that come through. So it actually helped me to publicly say, and you know, I'm not gonna, I won't be around for a few months and I'm going to do it again. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. I am going to be taking off, um, basically mid June to mid September, three months. And of course I will always check email, um, for any emergency type stuff, uh, once a day. Um, and that's enough. And the rest of that time, I'm going to be working on this book that it took me five years to get to the place of both confidence and time where I could actually engage in starting that. So, uh, that's going to be, that's my writing block. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to hear that. And then, you know, when you're taking on a project, like a book, 
walk us through a day of what that's like. I've always kind of wondered, I think I would be, you know, I just, you know, I think I would have to wake up and I guess make myself start to write right away. Otherwise I would distract myself a million, even without social media, I think. But what's, what is your strategy I, for that? <laughs> right. It's so true. Like eliminate the social media. Yeah. Don't look at your phone. Don't. Um, I, so I have two forms of, of how I write for me. And when we're talking about something that's a book project, uh, what I need is like a four to five hour chunk at a time. You know, it, it, this is not like a tweet or an article or a Facebook post where you can, you know, hammer something out in 10 minutes and be good to go. Um, I need a big chunk of time. So for me, what works is to get up and move my body, do some sort of sport to um, let my body and brain, you know, connect and, and uh, kind of let go of all of that stress and anxiety that we all face as, as human beings. And we all know as athletes, right, it feels good to get out there and do your sport, to do something. Um, so I will usually, especially living in Arizona and it's hot, you know, it makes sense for me to work out first. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I can stay in the air conditioning and write mm -hmm. <laughs> later, but for other people and depending if I go back East to upstate New York, um, where I'm from, if I'm back there, then I will often get up and write first. And then later in the afternoon or early evening, I'll go out for, for a run or a swim or a bike or climb a mountain. So um, I give myself that permission to choose which, which day it's going to be. going to be the A day or the B day. Which am I doing first? And then, you know, that, that helps. That definitely helps, uh, I don't know, put it in perspective of, of how I'm going to do that. But you're right. You look, I'm human, too. And some days it's just like, ugh. I feel crappy and or down or sad. I don't I don't feel like writing, you know, today. And I tell myself if I have a day like that, then I need to, you know, add in an extra day of writing to make up for that one day where I don't feel like doing it. And then of course, the other thing that helps a lot is what we're doing right now. I'm actually telling people that I'm writing. <laughs> so then I, I better do it. Right. I know. I find that so powerful. <laughs> you know, it's silly, but it's, it is powerful that you're like, okay, I, I told the world, so we'll, I'll have to do it. So exactly, exactly. If I said it out loud then I better do it otherwise. Uh, yeah. And it, when it you come work. back, you know, one of the mm -hmm. places people could find you is at the outspoken women in triathlon summit that we will be Ooh. having, uh, in late November, early December, and you're going to be leading the advocacy breakout. So you know, I know it's quite early, but can you give us a sneak preview of what that will entail? I would love to. And it actually kind of connects directly with what I'm talking about in this book that I'm working on, which largely the topic is connected to the advocacy platform. Um, and basically, I want to let men and women know that we, and by that this we, I'm I'm. Um, standing up for, you know, women and men who are not wealthy or famous or Olympic gold medalists, but, you know, the common person that we are all capable of affecting change and making a difference. And I know this because if I was able to do that, then other people can do that too. You know, and I have none of those things. I don't have an Olympic medal, you know, um, and I'm definitely not wealthy and I'm definitely, you know, I have my own struggles as a human being, all of these things. I'm certainly not famous, but it's 
if I was able to do something, then we all can do that. So I'm sharing that platform, you know, with the advocacy and to talk about many of the things you and I touched upon, you know, how do we deal with the negativity or the naysayers? How do we create that protective bubble around ourselves so that we don't lose who we are as individuals on that journey of activism and talk about, you know, where things can lead. Um, Cause honestly, if I look back, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't, I had no idea that I was going to become an activist, like to what's unfolded now. So, you know, uh, we always want to let people know that when you take on, you know, this uh, connection with something that's meaningful for you, um, look, look, look ahead to what might come your way and you'll feel more empowered on how to deal with those things. Um, once it, you know, it resonates and it's out there in the world. Cool. Well, I'm so excited to have you there. I know it'll be a great, great weekend. So, um, you know, thanks for your time today, Catherine. As always, it's just so much fun talking to you and learning what you have to say and getting caught up on all of your projects. Uh, best of luck with your <laughs> writing break. That's going to come up pretty quickly. So, um, and of course, you know, everyone can find what's your Instagram handle. I know that's the newest one. So we're going to, that's we're gonna the plug new that. one. Yeah. I think I just joined this week. I think I have a hundred followers. This is very exciting. I think after this, um, we can get you to 500. Woo. <laughs> so that one is Catherine underscore Bertine. And then I'm on Twitter at Catherine Bertine, no underscore. And then my website is also Catherine Bertine. So, you know, those, those three will pop up. That sounds weird to say all that. It sounds like highly egocentric to say my name three times in a row like that. So if you can handle any of that, thank you. But there's there's the social media world. Oh, and Facebook too. Anyway, okay. <laughs> That's enough of me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Great. Thanks, Alyssa. It's great to talk to you. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed the show today and don't worry, you will have Haley back next week and it will be the two of us once again. Um, In the meantime, if you are excited about the Outspoken Summit like we are over here, then head to OutspokenSummit.com, sign up there. You can follow us on Instagram at Outspoken Summit to check out over the next couple weeks. Uh, We'll be announcing some more speakers that are coming. All very exciting news there. So come out and join us with that later in the fall. And I will talk to you guys next week. Bye. Half of my heart is in Havana. Why I like biking? You're really moving your feet, and it's fun because you can actually steer where you're going when you want to. Whereas in swimming and running, you might have to plan ahead because in both of those things, either in swimming, you can run out of breath, or in running, you could trip and fall. The Iron Woman Podcast is produced by Live Feisty Media. Our awesome hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Our editor is Aaron Hamilton. Our social media queen is Danielle Adino. And our producer is my mom, Sarah Gross. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes. And have a great week of swimming, biking, and running. Bye for now. Bye.